It was hard for me to narrow it down to just one woman that inspires me. I think in our region there are just so many inspirational women. Women in the Appalachian Mountains seem to be tougher than women in a lot of other places. We can work as hard as the men and don't mind getting a little dirty, but we can also still bake the pies and mother everybody around us. Women here also seem to have a mystical connection with their surroundings that I think is very rare. It's that connection and combination of softness and strength that I did my best to capture in my book, Three Witches in a Small Town. I just feel very honored to know the women here and be a part of this heritage. That was the voice of Willie Dalton, a mother and published writer in Duffield, Virginia. We're a unique lot, us mountain women, that's for certain. Our stories speak for themselves. It's Women's History Month, so on this episode of Mountain Talk Monday, we are digging deep into the stories of inspirational Appalachian women, as told by the women in my community circle who inspire me. I'm your host, Kelly Haywood. Welcome to Mountain Talk Monday. On a day, on a day. As I work together the stories of the fine women whose voices you will hear in this broadcast, Willie's sentiment resounded. Can I tell you about more than one woman? What about a gaggle of women? Seeing as I couldn't narrow down the women who, by their example, had given me courage to be bold in my own life, of course I said sure. The stories of all of them need to be heard. Every day, without fail, I think of my grandmothers, Barbara, Louise, Johnson, Mullins, and Ida, Lee, Stacy, Hansel. We lived with my Mimi until I was 10 years old. That's what I called Barbara, my mother's mother. She had been a single mother long before I was born and had worked to buy her own home in Awesome, Kentucky, where she let my family come when we hit some hard times. My grandfather had been a paratrooper in Korea and Vietnam and returned home unable to cope with family life. She did the brave and the right thing, going on her own with her three teenage children. 
Mimi was a secretary at the Letcher County Board of Education in Whitesburg. She did the things for me a mother would do. Cooked breakfast, gave me a bath, took me to and from school, rubbed my back and tickled my feet while we watched Dallas, Knott's Landing, Falcon Crest, or Murder, she wrote, until I fell asleep. At one point, there were five adults, three full-time children, and three part-time children living in her three-bedroom, one-bathroom home. I never heard her complain of all of us being smashed in there like sardines. Her words were gentle, even when firm, and came from her mouth in perfect grammar and pronunciation, even if she did have our Appalachian way of speaking embedded in their formation on her tongue. She took pride in her appearance, never leaving the house unkept, yet I never knew her to go on any dates. Because of her, her hard work, and generosity, my concept of family wasn't a mom, dad, and children picture. It was the group of people who loved one another enough to take care of each other. Mimi showed me by example that I didn't need a man to be fulfilled in my life. Women can do it, and do it well on their own. Our first contributor story of the episode is from Carrie Norris, a teacher and musician living in Louisville, Kentucky. Carrie grew up in several locations across central Kentucky and for a time in South Carolina. Weekends were spent with her well-known grandmother, banjo player and singer Lily Mae Ledford, a founding member of the Coon Creek Girls, who are a staple on WMMT music programs. Lily May had grown up in Powell County, Kentucky, around the Red River Gorge. Carrie shares with us some of the memories of her grandmother and ways of being she found consistent between all her grandmothers and other elder Appalachian women. So when I think about women who have greatly influenced my life, who I take as examples of inspiration and and who I strive to emulate. Definitely my grandmother, Lily Mae Ledford, is on that list, probably at the top of the list. She's she's a woman who cared for me when I was very small, when my parents were my parents were young when they had me, so I stayed with her just about every weekend until I was four and we moved out of state. I was just real close to her when I was was little. One of the things that, about her that that inspires me so much is just her generosity of how she shared herself with me during that time. You know, there was no, you know, like now I hear of people who, you know, I don't know, grandparents who say, well, we don't we don't really babysit great our grandchildren or 
I mean, that, that just would have been unheard of for my grandmother. The love and the generosity. I mean, I, I completely understand if people want to have boundaries and, and that kind of thing. But as far as sharing herself with me and giving me her love, that was just, um, that was so immediate with her. And she she did it with such joy and such, uh, I don't know, you know, palpable enthusiasm that I, I just will be forever grateful for that time I had with her when I was really little, you know, and especially all the music that she shared with me. She sang to me every night and rocked me, and those experiences have never, ever left me. And I, I think that later on, you know, when I went through hard times and we all go through those times that are challenging in life, those are, those are things that, that help sustain me. And, of course, her music, too, really, really, really inspired me. You know, her music was of her home. It was of her tradition, of her, of her community. And certainly Lily Mae made a mark on the world with her music. It was something, I think, very connected to the, the place where she grew up in uh, Powell County in the Red River Gorge, and she had a deep, deep love and reverence for that place. And for, for the world, for the natural world, to me, I can feel that in her music. I can feel it in the power of her music. She loved music. She just flat out loved music, and she she was good at it, you know. And she left her home when she was 19 to go play on the radio in Chicago, and which was a brave thing for her to do. I think it was a hard adjustment for her. She talked about being made fun of for the way she talked, and she had a lisp when she went up there, and she had to train herself out of that because she was on the radio and. Just she would get lost trying to take the trains and get places and had never had to keep up with checks or pocketbooks or anything like that. But she did all that stuff and I, I think that it was courageous. You know, and then again, later in life, she played on the radio for many years, but then there was a time when quote hillbilly music became not as popular on the radio. And so she kind of felt discarded, although I think there were some things about commercial radio that she was probably glad to let go of, just kind of the image constructing that went on and so forth. But, you know, when she started getting invitations to play out again later in her life, she really rose to that occasion, and she she came to it with a lot of gratitude and joy and, and just... The joy, I think, that she always had about music and for people who would be interested in her old-time music, you know, when she was on the stage talking and sharing with an audience, it was like sitting in the living room with her. You know, she would tell you stories, and it was a very intimate experience, and I think that's what people to, responded to with her. She certainly shared that very very generously, as I've mentioned before, with audiences. Yeah, she she did share her music with the world, and I think a lot of people are are enriched by that. And again, it's something that's hard to put into words, but 
a reverence of the natural world, that generosity of time and energy that she had with me when I was little. Those are things that come to mind. And that's a tradition in our family as far as traits of Appalachian people. My, my dad was incredibly close to his grandmother. My mom was close to her grandmother. And there was just this tradition of the grandparents you know, being these rocks and guideposts for the young, I think that that's just really beautiful. I think every person who loves deeply makes a mark on the world, and I believe that, and, you know, I know that's true of the women that I've spoken of. My mom's grandmother, Stella Mae Ledford, uh, Stella Mae Tackett was her maiden name, and my dad's grandmother, Mary Elizabeth Martin, Mary Elizabeth Davis was her maiden name, and then my grandmother, Lily Mae Ledford. And all of those women did that, and, you know, maybe that's the most important mark you can make on the world, is just to really love deeply. Now, North Carolina native and Virginia resident storyteller, actor, artist, writer, counselor, and inspiring Appalachian mountain woman extraordinaire, Angeline DeBoard, shares some of the poetry she has written of her grandmother. Angeline says of her grandmother, quote, Granny's name was Ida Bell Muse. She was from the many, many deep generations in the most isolated region of the Smoky Mountains. She was a burn blower and a blood stopper and a woman who never wrote a check or drove a car, but knew everything any girl turning into a woman would ever need to know. She was gentle and tender and smart and strong. She was an angel on earth, and I miss her every day. End quote. Hey, well, my granny was my favorite person in the whole world, and I would have kept her with me forever if I could. I grew up with her. She slept with me the night I was born. It was her that I bonded with as an infant and stayed close to until she passed on to the other world and I don't know what to say except that uh, she was a kind and gentle presence in my life and I'm just going to share with you a couple of poems I've written a lot about her and uh, thought about her I still think about her every day and she's still with me so I'm going to share two two poems that I've written in her honor. Thank you for the opportunity to share stories about her. Poems of Ancient Grannies Oh, ancient grannies, where are your poems? Not written on the hallowed pages beside the words of Milton or Blake, Shelley or Byron. I do not find them written there. Not pinned down, your words are lifted up written in the air, clear before my searching eyes. And even to my ear, the cadence of your poems is heard in the rhythm of the clear-eyed man. He's been mothered well, I think. I see his mother's poetry written above his clear, bright eyes, words sketched with a tender hand across the smooth forehead. 
ancient grannies, I know your words were sweet and strong when I see your grandbabies tilt their ear at a whimsical phrase or a lilting song. Your poetry throbs in my blood, in the images of my dreams, in the cycles of my life, words strong with pictures of what was and is and will be, written not on hallowed pages, but secretly written in my veins, secretly written there with your blood. It's been a week now since Mamma died, and this morning, right at dawn, I went out on the porch to get me a stick of firewood. The frost was heavy on the ground, and the fenced-in garden was a solid white square, crisp as an old woman's church handkerchief. And there she was, right there where we'd planted beans last year. I could see her small, humped shape, a dark profile topped by her black sunbonnet. Mamma, Mamma, my bare feet will not move. They are frozen, but now it wasn't from the cold. These bare feet have walked a frosted yard before. I didn't feel the cold. Like in a dream, I cannot move my feet to cross this space between me and that garden. I cannot cross that space. Wouldn't take long. Wouldn't take long to get from here to there. To get to where I could stand by her side. Mamma! Mamma! My voice is loud enough to get the rooster going, and soon, too soon, dern him. His crowing drowns out that word. I stand there and stare. Hard, hard, hard I stare, and I will not move my eyes. I will not move my eyes. The sun breaks bright over the hill. The aggravating rooster crows louder. Someone from inside calls to me, and all of this combines somehow. It combines enough to prove to me, to make me finally see that there is no one, there is no one, there is no one there. Somehow, my grandmother's too seemed magic. It was a practical magic, and one you didn't question. My last living grandparent is my father's mother, Ida Lee, or Idie. Memaw grew up on Liberty Street in Hazard, Kentucky. She was a career woman long before being a career woman was cool. Memaw was a paralegal working with a firm and at the courthouse, both in Whitesburg. When I was pretty young, she moved to upstate South Carolina with my papaw, Uncle Jonathan, her youngest son, and my Aunt Sharon and Uncle Mark. All of them moved to find work, as so many of us do from the coal fields. 
She worked as a paralegal there as well, both in office and from her home office, and did so well into her 70s. Memo is a storyteller. Summers with her meant ghost stories, tales of the paranormal, long histories of our family members and their adventures, and the events that shaped her into the woman she is. Memo is a writer. From her I picked up the craft and never thought twice about my ability to do it and become published. She did it, so could I. I would be amiss if I didn't mention her feistiness. Memo taught me that if I couldn't stand up for myself or my loved ones, then there was something terribly wrong with me. You stand on your principle. It's what you do. Memo took me with her once after our Thanksgiving dinner to take plates to some of her homeless friends in Spartanburg. She didn't know a stranger, especially if they were in need, and she didn't judge them for their plight. We all have fallen on hard times in our own ways. On the flip side, she was once banned from an entire season of my dad's basketball games for throwing her shoe at the referee and hitting him with it. Not to mention that she showed several prominent individuals in Letcher County the moon on a few occasions, if you know what I mean. One of the proudest moments of my life was when both myself and my mamma were published in the same edition of Enscape, Moorhead State University's literary magazine. We both read our work at the publication launch, and my heart sang. Lydia Antoinette Bro did not grow up in Appalachia, but her grandmother did. She learned the ways of Appalachia through her grandmother's stories and has now chosen to make this land her home too. Just so happens, her grandmother is a writer too. And just like I am, she's incredibly proud of her and shares some of her work with us. I still remember the package arriving directly from Neal Creek in Ashland, Oregon. I still remember tracing my small child hands over the box that contained my grandmother's history in a strange land I'd never been to except in the recesses of my ancestry, Haymond. I remember thinking it sounded quite similar to the word almond, as I was often known to think of non sequiturs at the rush of momentum. My grandmother was a writer, not a writer, a writer, emphasis on the suffixing syllable. We came from a family of writers, a mystical and enchanting occupation that held no preliminary status or acclaim. You simply were. You wrote, therefore you were. Gann had told me about this book for some time. The words that I knew so well, the home I loved to inhabit, her southern Oregon home of Still Point, on the cover, surrounded by a soft lilac watercolor painting of my grandmother on a home street in Haymond. Underneath the name of this particular homestead, emblazoned proudly on the cover, was Life Notes from a Kentucky Woman. And now I will read an excerpt of her legacy, Daddy's Banjo, from Still Point, Life Notes from a Kentucky Woman. I know I am a Kentuckian when family stories start layering over one another, making it important to find the seeds of truth before folklore sets in. Such is the story of Daddy's Banjo. I had no idea when I began writing my book that the legacy of Daddy's banjo would become a wellspring of living truth. On the other hand, I should have recognized this could happen, as life is always deeper than it appears on the surface. 
We are allowed to work our personal history into a private book designed so the owner can handle the pages of harsh truth about life and perhaps himself. What is left of our short stay on Earth is our birth date, a figure that could be jimmied, and the more definitive date of departure, which is publicly recorded. Your name, date of birth, date of death, marriages, divorces, and birth of children are your legal markers, the only trail we leave behind, regardless of our rank in life or our inflated egos. How I accidentally met a young writer from the Knoxville News Sentinel in Letcher County helped me to understand how the ironies in life unveil our authentic selves and possibly reveal our hidden purpose. The young man's keen interest in traditional music led him to Whitesburg, Kentucky, and the Apple Shop, where our mountain ways and music have been documented and recorded since the 60s. I happened to be there. He was interested in tracking the story of Doc Boggs' banjo, not the musician. He could not believe his good fortune making instant contact with someone who could hasten his search. He was quick to see the heartbeat of the banjo lies in the stories from the mountain people, especially those people from Haymond and Pine Creek. What better place to begin his search? Our serendipitous encounter led to a relationship which was brief but rewarding for me. Being young and curious about life, I am sure he has gone on to more exciting things to write about. For me, I am left to chronicle my personal chapter of Kentucky history. In the summer of 1981, I was visiting my daughter, Laura, who was attending Berea College in Berea, Kentucky. I walked past a music store on Main Street, where a record display in the window stopped me in my tracks. Several album covers displayed were showing Doc Boggs and a picture of him holding Daddy's banjo. My reflection exposed my wounded heart to me when I looked at my expression in the window glass. I startled myself, seeing such deep sadness, and wanted to deny the woman was me. I went inside and quietly bought the record collection made by Folkways Recording Studio. This was the lowest point in my life, as I was coping with the tragic losses of my husband, Dean, and Daddy, both gone within an 18-month period. This long season of mourning left me bereft, floundering with an empty heart and the crushing blow of identity loss. Buying the albums comforted me and gave me something concrete to take back to my California home, but I knew I was collecting memories. Daddy's banjo was gone. The banjo that was as much a part of him as his coffee cup, cigarettes, and khaki work clothes was no longer in Letcher County. I recall coming home from California and learning what happened to his banjo. Revival of interest in Doc Boggs was well underway. I could tell Daddy had mixed emotions about letting the banjo go as he began explaining to me what happened. I was heartbroken for him because I knew how much he loved the instrument. His banjo was his comfort and best friend he turned to in jubilant and dark times. Happy times meant light-hearted songs like Here Old Rattler Here or My Old Kentucky Home, while in somber moments he would play and sing When My Blue Moon Turns to Gold Again. My sister and brothers were roused from bed on school days with the revel we call of Here Old Rattler Here and the days after I left home. Their memories, like mine, always include the banjo. I thought more about the lonely man who worked for many years at the Radford Army Ammunition Plant in Radford, Virginia. Daddy was a 350-mile round-trip hard driving away from home with only his banjo to keep him tied to his home and family. Many times he made the long journey over a weekend to check on us to be assured we were safe. 
You cannot be raised with that sound without your spirit being indelibly marked and your heart knows you belong to these strings. My daddy and his banjo gave us that legacy. I'm sure Doc Boggs never imagined he would become part of national movement honoring country blues music and return to our doorstep as a folklore hero. Doc Boggs, a country gentleman, was a modest, humble man, as was my father. My father's reputation set him apart as a well-loved, respected man who had a deep, abiding faith in humanity, his church, and family. Daddy's relationship with Doc Boggs goes back to when he was a young man, before his marriage and children. Doc Boggs was at least 10 years older than my father, so Doc and his mentor, teaching Daddy how to play the banjo in Doc's uniquely original style. When the young man took a wife, Doc Boggs and his wife Sarah rented two rooms upstairs to the young couple with a baby, me. Mother taught her first year of school in Kentucky, and Sarah Boggs cared for the infant. Sarah was barren and yearned to have a child and wanted to adopt me. Mother says, she was such a sweet woman, I would have done anything for her. She loved you so much and took such good care of you, made you baby clothes and treated you as her very own. When she asked if she could have you, I wanted to cry with her when I said, oh Sarah, I couldn't do that. I'd give you anything else I have, but I can't give you my baby. I have known a lot of love. Doc hawked his banjo to Daddy when Daddy was a young man of 20, three years before my birth and his responsibilities as a married man. Doc's life became troubled due to his hard living, and Sarah, his wife, made it clear to him things had to change if he expected her to stay with him. He gave up liquor and his music to follow the rules of the church and keep his marriage. My family grew up with Daddy's banjo and never associated the instrument with Doc Boggs, as we only knew him through Daddy's stories. Doc Boggs returned to ask for the banjo over 25 years later. I will have to tell you this part of the story through the eyes of my brother, G.C., who was in his high school at the time. He saw a fancy strange car parked in front of the house, so he snuck through the back door to avoid the company because he was coming home from a late football practice and was wearing his uniform. He could hear the men talking in the living room, and Daddy called him in to meet Doc Boggs. G.C. does not remember the names of the two men with Doc, but my brothers witnessed the transaction. The banjo is something we never talk about because Daddy used the banjo to teach his sons what he valued as the most important lesson in life. Nothing is more important to consider than the worth of a man's word. So, mountain man to mountain man, within the walls of our humble cold camp home, their code of mountain honor was revealed in front of strangers. The newcomers witnessed something I doubt few men outside our hills would fully understand. Daddy gave his priceless banjo back to Doc for the few dollars Doc had hawked it for years before. They behaved as if the dealing occurred yesterday, not the time gap of more than a quarter of a century. Daddy weighed his decision carefully and knew the intrinsic lesson of the transaction for his three sons were to become men of their word. Doc went the route of renowned folk festivals, playing at Newport Folk Festival, University of Massachusetts, Walker Art Center in Minneapolis, to name a couple of places, nurtured by the people who had rediscovered him. He enjoyed recognition for his contribution to the music world and his last years on earth. Time has passed since Doc's death, and he is honored annually at the Doc Boggs Festival in Wise, Virginia. To my knowledge, Mike Seeger still has Daddy's banjo. He shared the banjo with fans at the Doc Boggs Festival in the late 90s. Brother G.C. met him there, and Mr. Seeger gave him his phone number and home address so we know where the banjo was at that time. 
The last Friday in October, year 2000, Mr. Seeger appeared at the Ginger Rogers Theater in Medford, Oregon. He was on a Retrograss concert tour with his cohorts, David Grisham and John Hartford. The evening of the concert, Mr. Seeger was busy arranging his CDs in the lobby of the theater before his performance when I slipped a note into his hand. He took the note and with a perfunctory smile, stuffed the note into his pocket. My note said, Mr. Seeger, there is a Kentuckian in your audience tonight who would like very much to meet you and visit. I am a native of Letcher County, the daughter of Garnard Kinser, who gave his banjo to Doc Bog so he could make his comeback. I understand you are the caretaker of my family legacy. I have had your address for several years, but I have been too emotional to write. Sarah Hagen. Mr. Seeger did acknowledge offhandedly from the stage he had a note from a woman in the audience whose family kept Doc Boggs' banjo for 24 years or so, and he proceeded to play a piece in the Doc Boggs style. He did not make an effort to contact me after the show, so I feel I am being guided to tell the real story of Daddy's banjo. It is rumored Mr. Seeger plans to give the banjo to the Smithsonian Institute. If so, the history of Letcher County and my family need to go with the banjo. I wanted my reader to know the true Letcher County story of Doc Boggs' banjo, written directly from the Kinser family. This daughter learned the lesson, as well as her brothers, about being a woman worthy of her own word, Daddy's Daughter. Truth cannot be tarnished, although it may be hidden by layers of man's indiscretions. Burnished truth is one of most powerful discoveries we can find for ourselves. This was an excerpt from the words of my grandmother's heart, Still Point, Life Notes from a Kentucky Woman, by Sarah L. Cornette Hagen. Artist and advocate Lacey Hale grew up in Knott County, Kentucky, and like the rest of us, couldn't pick just one woman that stood above the rest. Lacey shares with us the traits that she finds inspirational in the gaggle of women who raised her. My name is Lacey Hale. I am from Ermine, which is here in Letcher County, Kentucky, and I'm an artist, a visual artist, and I work a lot in the community. And I am inspired by several Appalachian women in my life. My mom, first and foremost, um, you know, she has raised four children. Uh, we grew up really poor. She always found ways to, I remember in our Easter baskets, she would, um, if they didn't have money to go out and buy toys, she would sew, like I remember particularly this, this little bunny rabbit that she made all of us out of this you know kind of like a terry uh cloth but and it was yellow <laughs> and she put eyes and and stuff on it so she always made sure that we were 
I guess we really never realized when we were young how poor we were because she always had ways to feed us what we needed and clothe us, you know, give us toys, make us toys, make sure that we were happy and healthy. And she continues to take care of us, you know, anytime we go to her house, it's always like, what can I, I, if I don't feed you, you know, I'll feel bad, you know, you got to eat something. And she's a really strong person and uh, I feel lucky to be her daughter. And her name is Havana Hale. I'm from Knott County and that's where she still lives. Also, uh, both of my grandmas, my uh, maternal grandmother, she raised nine children. She, uh, you know, my grandpa worked in the mines and so he was gone really long hours. Uh, there was a mine collapse at one point and they didn't know where he was and she, or if he was okay, and you know, she held it together and, and took care of the family. And he got arrested, I think twice for making moonshine and was in jail at one point for six months. And so she was really strong and, uh, there's a story about her delivering one of her children at home. You know, she had the baby by herself. She had it before the midwife could come, so she's strong stock. <laughs> and then my paternal grandmother, you know, I remember her. She she was she was very assertive, <laughs> and um, uh, you know, I grew up uh, with them gardening, and she worked you know, just like a man, and we'd get out, I mean, if I, you know, air quotes here, <laughs> just like a man, but she, you know, she wasn't afraid of, like, getting dirty, getting her hands dirty, getting out in the garden, working hard. She raised four children on hardly anything, and they gardened, they had hogs and stuff like that that they slaughtered, and they even had a little store in their house for a while that helped provide for their family and you know she just she was the force in that family she dealt with all the business and she really made sure that everybody had what they needed and then her two daughters uh, my aunts Patsy and Betty they were artists and they still are well Patsy has since passed away but Betty's still alive and um, she's she's an artist and uh, but they both taught art Patsy, I lived closer to her for a longer period of my life, and I remember going to Patsy's house, and she would have all of these, you know, boxes of crayons and, and colored pencils and markers, and I thought I was in heaven, you know, because <laughs> I would go there, and she would let me use whatever art supplies that she had, and so I really think that that helped form me into the person I am today. She made sure to show me how to do certain, like, artistic techniques, and as a child, just, just having that opportunity to... Um, you know, to play around with that stuff and to be in, in just kind of like <laughs> deep in these like, you know, with, with all these like materials that I normally wouldn't have at home. You know, I, I had colored pencils and some crayons, but these, you know, she just had like a plethora <laughs> of supplies. Looking back and it took me, I think it was after she passed away, I realized that she really inspired me as a child to be an artist. And I, I feel really lucky too because my, you know, my parents, um, never discouraged me, and my mom has always pushed me to, to do what I want and to make sure that I live to be who I'm supposed to be. And they never said art was not a, a job, a real job. They always made sure that I knew that what I loved and what I wanted to do was uh, valuable and important. So I think all of these women, you know, my two grandmas, Hattie <laughs> uh, and Yorda, uh, my mom, Havana, and my aunts, Patsy and Betty, I think they all really, you know, just watching them and growing with them, they, they turned me into who I am today. So those are a handful of Appalachian women that, that really inspire me. Lacey was the first woman I sat down with who chose to speak of her mother. The mother-daughter relationship is a complex one. 
As we become women and seek to gain our independence and find where exactly we fit into things, the mother-daughter relationship can become strained. It's not something that's uncommon. As the mother of three daughters, it is on my mind a lot. What will that look like in the family I've created? What gives me heart is that in my own relationship with my mother, as I get older, I grow to understand her and her choices in a more empathetic way, renewing my bond with her. Yet for some of us, independence becomes a permanent thing before we were ready to fly completely on our own. Lillian Prosperino grew up in Letcher County with her mother and her sister. She shares the memories of the strength she saw in her mother that she tries to now embody in her life. My name is Lillian Prosperino. I grew up on Big Cowan in Letcher County, Kentucky. I've lived kind of all over the county and uh, in Lexington, Kentucky, but I'm back here living now. I wanted to talk about a strong Appalachian woman that I've always admired, who is my mother. Her name was Donna Frazier, later Donna Frazier Prosperino, and then Donna Frazier Thomas. She is deceased, but she was the strongest woman I've ever met in my entire life. As a child, you know, she raised me and my sister mostly by herself. My parents were divorced, and I do have a relationship with my dad, but my sister's dad's not around at all. We were pretty poor growing up. You know, we lived in a really old house that my grandfather built. So I watched my mom chop up candle and bust up coal every day, shake out the grater at the bottom to get all the soot and dust out, you know, heat up water on the coal stove if our power went out so that we could take a bath. We raised a garden. She always had flowers planted. We always grew our own vegetables and we had chickens, things like that. Ways that I wish I lived now, but I really don't. Um, maybe someday I'll get there. <laughs> but my mom, she worked full time and also, you know, just raised us girls. And I don't know how she did it really. Even when she wasn't working, she was volunteering at the school that we went to at Cowan. She was always just the most selfless person as a mother and as a friend to anybody who knew her. Even though I don't have children of my own, I hope that I have some of that. At least I try to be half the person that she was in my everyday life. I work as a mental health counselor and try to help people who are struggling here in Appalachia. I like to think that someday I'll be any bit of the person that she was. I'd be proud to just know that a smidge of her rubbed off on me. <laughs> there within the holy city we'll sing and rejoice praising Christ the Savior
I don't talk to many people who don't have an aunt who stands way out in their thoughts. Kind of like we all have that crazy uncle. We all have an aunt who was like our second mother, but super cool. As Lillian spoke of hoping to be half the woman her mother was, I couldn't help but think of my Aunt Sharon Elaine Hansel Sexton, my dad's sister. She doesn't have any children of her own, but she took me, my sister, and my cousins on as if her life depended upon us becoming stable and secure grown people. She taught me laughter in the face of fear, pain, and heartache. Sharon taught me to care for and be careful with my body when no one else seemed to want to have the talk with me. Respect yourself, she'd say, and others will respect you. She fostered my love of art, craft, and theater. Together we arranged the flowers for my wedding. She is a great florist and painter. From her, I learned that womanhood didn't always go hand in hand with motherhood and that was wonderfully okay. Being a woman meant so much more than being married to a man and having his babies, though those aren't small things by any means. Madeline Flannery is a writer and professor of communications at Hazard Community and Technical College. Her family have long resided in Letcher County, and their story and its history is like the plot of a movie or a great work of historical fiction. This isn't unusual for us mountain women, though. There are so many whose stories would, in their unique specificity, appeal universally. Madeline is writing the real story of her family. The woman who inspires her is part of this tale, her aunt. She shares with us the impact that her aunt's ways had on profoundly shaping her womanhood. One Appalachian woman who has inspired me would have to be my great-aunt Flora Jane Wright of Pine Creek, Kentucky. While my mamma, daddy's mom, was a classy woman who wore the latest fashion and always dressed up to go to town, Aunt Flory, Papa's younger sister, Granny Wright, as many knew her, took great pleasure in showing off her old-timey or what her kids and grandkids called her backward ways. She loved to make a show of sassering her coffee when one of her children took her out to a fancy restaurant, kept her hair wound up in a long braid, liked to tell people she didn't have enough hair to wad a shotgun. And she spoke her mind no matter who could hear her, never impressed by money or power. She lived to the age of 95 and kept chickens on a steep hillside way up into her 80s. One time she fell over the bank with the eggs she'd just collected. She broke her hip, but was quick to brag that she broke nary an egg. Flory did not hesitate to call out a disrespectful child or bad behavior no matter who was guilty of it. She favored a hot wheel track as her means of correction. Men in their 40s and even older were swatted with it when they'd done something stupid and she'd heard about it. They'd show up for a visit and she'd let them know. She had a pretty rough childhood, orphaned just a month after she turned a year old, and then was taken in by an aunt over in Virginia 
who didn't much care for children. She told some sad stories about it. Why would you whoop a child for laughing, she used to ask. She didn't even know about her brothers and sister until she was half grown, was just a child when she married her first husband, a coal miner who was mean to her, kept her locked in the camp house with a new baby when he left for work every day. She figured a way out and made her way over the mountain to Kentucky, where she and the baby stayed with her brother, my papa, and that's where she met her second husband, Dan Wright. She and Dan settled in Pine Creek and eventually saved up enough money to buy some land off Aunt Jane at the head of the holler. They built the log house that stands there to this day at the head of Pine Creek. That's where they raised their family. As the crow flies, it isn't far from the head of Perk Creek, where Flory was born, where her mother was killed. Whenever her mother's murder was brought up, Flory was quick to forgive the man that was hung for it. She said she felt sorry for him, that he wasn't right in the head, and she didn't see any good coming out of bringing up the hurt all over again. She made a point of befriending his niece, the only kin she knew of, and didn't want any of the family to hold ill feelings towards her or anyone else. With Flory, you knew where you stood. She didn't try to paint a pretty picture or hide her head in the sand. Back in the 80s, I used to videotape all our family reunions on Pine Creek. One year, I drove in from New York City where I was going to graduate school, studying technology and culture. I was feeling proud of myself having survived my first year living on the Upper West Side on the edge of Harlem, glad to be back in the summer glow of Letcher County and family. The tape was rolling. Arthur Adams had just pronounced Flory the queen of the creek. She was grinning at me, at the camera. Then she leaned in and said, Are they as mean in New York as they are around here? So I guess you could say that my Aunt Flory inspired me to not apologize for who I am, to take responsibility without bitterness, and to call it the way I see it. It'll seem but just a moment of praising God's grace. That'll be a glad reunion day. A glad day, a wonderful day. A glad day, a glorious day. There with all the holy angels and loved ones to stay. Smith, an amazing mother, farmer, writer, advocate, foodie, and volunteer, sat down with me after recording the narration for an episode of the Southern Foodways Alliance podcast, Gravy. Her voice was so rich and danced in a not whimsical way. It waltzed. I didn't know what to expect when she began to speak of who inspired her, but what she shared is a wonderful way to end this broadcast. Her words sum up what we are as Appalachian women, 
and ways to continue to be support for one another. Thank you for listening to this edition of Mountain Talk Monday. Here in downtown Wattsburg, I'm your host, Kelly Haywood, for WMMT. We are Real Stories, Real News, Real People Radio. Music in this episode is by Carrie Norris. Books written by Willie Dalton and Sarah Cornett Hagen can be purchased on Amazon. I hope you find some joy and strength in these stories. We have plenty of reason to be a proud bunch of mountain people. Here's Laura Smith. One of the things that really inspires me is when I look at old photographs of people like Mary Breckenridge in the Frontier Nursing Service, and then there were these women who were part of, like a, I guess it was a WPA program that brought rural libraries into communities and they would ride on horseback and bring books like to people's house you know there are just these cool old photos of these women who are riding on horseback across rugged terrain in order to go sit with other women whether that be to deliver a baby or check on a newborn or deliver a book to a mother and child and I think that that's so amazing because there's something about these women who would travel across long distances on horseback through creeks, uphills, downhills, in order to enter into these very intimate domestic spaces with other women. And I feel like it says something about the history of this region and how far people will go to help one another. But I think it's really also inspiring to me because it's something that I feel like currently just you know, not just here, but everywhere our society is kind of missing in that human interaction, right? Like we text each other and we talk online. When I was growing up, my grandparents would just visit. People would come over all throughout the day just to like sit on the porch or sit in the kitchen and drink coffee and just visit and talk. And I feel like a lot of times our lives get so busy now and we can do everything digitally or on the phone that we forget that human connection of women being together in each other's homes, just visiting and helping one another. And so I really like looking at those old photos and wondering what their experiences and lives were like traveling on horseback over mountains through this terrain in order to go into someone's home and help them out with something, be there and just kind of be present in their lives. I think that we're still supportive of one another. When we live in rural areas, it's hard to always get to people. So like I know a lot of cool young women who live all over Eastern Kentucky, but they might be like an hour to two hour of a drive. You're not always in the physical space. And I think that there's something really important and powerful about getting together as a group. And especially when you're doing something, like I think about community centers, people have quilting bees and are getting together because it's really you know it's about producing something but it's really about the time you spend together you know and the support network that you create for one another and I think that there's something about getting back to having more spaces and more opportunities for women to get together to share their lives and build support networks for one another just creating those moments of intimacy to really check in with one another, see how you can support and help. And I mean, it happens in different ways. I just think that there's something about 
rural communities that used to be more tight-knit than sometimes they feel now because things are transient. It's easy to just live on screens <laughs> and connect that way, whether that be text messages or on Facebook. It's just different than looking into somebody's eyes and being in their presence, connecting in that very real in-person way, <laughs> I guess.